Welcome to Passion Play Profit. I'm your host, Peter Liu, and I'll be interviewing both young and grizzled entrepreneurs to teach you how to find your passion, play, enjoy, persevere in the game of business, and get rewarded for it. Today, I'm privileged and honored to be joined by a partner at Foundation Capital, where he focuses on building the next generation of leading enterprise software. He started on Wall Street at Barclays Capital, advising tech, media, and telecom companies, spending time on both the buy side and the sell side of major deals, from mergers, takeovers, to corporate debt and equity financing. He then worked as a PE professional at Symphony Technology Group and an investor at Omidyar Tech Ventures. Sid Trivedi, welcome to the show, and let's talk about how you've turned your passion to play to profit. Hey, Peter. Nice to meet you. Thanks for having me on. The pleasure is completely mine, Sid, and it is an honor. So as the first question, right, I always want to know about how your childhood has potentially impacted what you've done in college and abroad. So how did your childhood impact, you know, what you studied in college? Why did you go into economics and bio? Great question. Um, you know, my childhood was was pretty different from most people here in the in the States. I was very fortunate to live in a whole bunch of countries. Um, so for context, I was born in India. Uh, even in India, we moved around a, a bunch. I was only there for the first seven years of my life, but I was born in East India and we moved to North India and we moved to West India. And we were moving a lot for the first seven years, even me as a kid. And then in the 90s, we moved to Singapore, um, which is a big shock for me, you know, going from India to Singapore. Um, and I was lucky to kind of experience a completely different set of cultures there. And then we moved again uh, to Jakarta, Indonesia. We moved back to Singapore. And in fact, my last two years of my high school career, my dad was effectively working out of Europe. He was just flying. We, he agreed that he would not move all of us again one more time, uh, just in my final years. And I'm, I'm very thankful that he didn't do that. And instead, he, he did all the miles to, to go back and forth. Uh, but had such a dynamic childhood and was very fortunate to meet people from so many different backgrounds and cultures because of all these, you know, international moves um, and was fortunate to, to get into Cornell. Um, and I came to Cornell um, and decided to study econ and biology, um, mostly because I really liked both of those subjects. They were, they were the two subjects that as a, as a high school student, I was most passionate about when I went into an econ class or a bio class. That's what got me excited. And um, in fact, when I was studying as a high school student, I, I did actually consider becoming a doctor. Uh, uh, and, and I did, you know, I, I, I applied to kind of more medical programs in the UK thinking, and, and there they don't have pre-med. So, so I was thinking, oh, maybe I should do that, but ended up deciding that was not for me. Uh, but I still like biology. Um, so I thought, okay, like maybe there's a way to combine econ and bio. Um, I don't think it, it, you know, if you look at my career today, it, in no way did I use either of those subjects. So, so shame on me, should have just studied a different subject like engineering or yeah. you know, something <laughs> specific like CS or, 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 or should have even done business. Like that would have been probably mm -hmm. better, but, but I, I, I really enjoyed my time at Cornell. Absolutely. Absolutely. Cornell is a fantastic place to be. And, you know, like you said, right. Um, perhaps you just want to apply yourself earlier, right? Get into the workforce earlier or just find a way to impact the world earlier. And, you know, Cornell is just the place to do that, right? Um, for any study, any person, right? Um, and I guess in your sense, you actually were one of the co-founders of CVC, right? 
And I know that's a bit different than just, you know, pure econ, pure bio, but how did you come across, right? The idea of founding one of, one of, or probably the biggest venture capital clubs at Cornell right now? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question, Peter. And for context for, for people who are listening to the podcast who don't know what CVC is, it's called Cornell Venture Capital. And it was a club that a very close friend, dear friend of mine, Andrew Schoen and I started in 2010, Cornell. And what it does is it works with venture firms and their portfolio companies. So it allows students to to actually do the, the professional job, not effectively of a VC, but basically support a VC in some way and get some flavor of what it's like being a venture capitalist or, or what it's like being a kind of a team member at an early stage startup. Um, and to, to answer your question, Peter, in terms of how did we come up with this idea? Candidly, it was just that, that Andrew and I really wanted to, to learn more about venture capital. And for context, 2010, just to, to put it into context for your audience members who are listening, Andreessen Horowitz, which is a very big firm that many people know about, even if they don't know venture capital, they know about Andreessen Horowitz in the tech world. That firm was founded in 2009. So the concept, and that firm is probably the largest venture capital firm in terms of number of people working in, in, in a specific firm. Um, so the concept of having a lot of people at a venture firm and specifically having young people at a venture firm just did not exist in 2010. And there were a few things that were particularly interesting for, for, for Andrew and I that, that we kind of were seeing happening. Um, you know, there was this, there's everything going on at Cornell. So Zimride, which was the company that ended up becoming Lyft, that John Zimmer, who was a Cornellian, founded, was founded in 2007. And it was actually very focused on helping students get from the airports in New York City to Cornell. That was the whole concept of, of Zimride. And obviously, Lyft has changed the world in, in, in its own way. But we had seen some of what was going on in these fledging startups here in uh in, in, here in, at Cornell, and we were thinking about, okay, well, it'd be cool to just understand this community a little bit more. The other thing that that uh, was exciting was um, the, the movie, The Social Network, which was about you know Facebook and everything. That also came out in 2010. So this was a very interesting time where generally people were excited about venture capital and you know what is investing at the early stage in technology. And and certainly Andrew and I were in that bucket. So. Mm-hmm. Our goal was to go and you know, figure out if there was a way for us to work with these venture capital firms, which are generally very small. And when we looked at the websites of these firms, we realized, well, there are a bunch of very senior, generally older, generally male partners. Um, and so who's doing the real work? Like who does the diligence work? Who's helping these startups that they invest in? And our assumption was they're probably doing the work themselves. And then we said, well, what if we went to a few of these groups and we said, we'll do some part of the work and, you know, you don't need to pay us. Our, our primary goal will be to learn. Um, so we had this pretty crazy idea and, and we went to our faculty, then faculty advisor, who's still the faculty advisor at CVC, Zach Schulman, who is now the director of entrepreneurship at Cornell. But at the time, he was just a professor, a part-time oh, wow. professor. Actually, he was a lecturer at the Johnson School, the, the post-grad Johnson School. And, you know, I, I've known Zach, I've been fortunate to know Zach for a long time, almost 15 years, but wow. I, we didn't know this at the time. The, the advantage was that when we went to Zach, we kind of pitched this crazy idea to him. And, and Zach is the type of person who's who's actually willing to go and try crazy ideas. And he said, sure, like, let's go try this. I know a few 
investors. He was a part-time VC in, in, the, in the upstate New York region, and he had trained a whole bunch of students who had gone on to become venture capitalists. And, and, and then he also had some friends because he had been a venture lawyer uh, in New York City before kind of coming back to Cornell and becoming a lecturer. So to, to Zach's credit, he used a bunch of his network in the early days, and he connected us to some fantastic firms and, and, and investors, and they ended up becoming some of our early projects. And then after that, you know, wow. we did a lot of work stalking uh, random people who, and, 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 and specifically Cornell alums. We started off at mm-hmm. Cornell alums and we tried to, to ping them, or if they came to campus to speak, we'd go up to them and ask them, Hey, we have this club. And would, would you consider at least listening to, to us and our idea? Um, and, and obviously it's mm-hmm. become much bigger since then. Yes. And it has flourished. And I can tell you right now, there's almost like 200 applications per semester to that club and it's an incredibly competitive club um and one that i myself had trouble getting into so um kudos right to you for building this entire thing from scratch and you know seeing it through all the way you uh to what it is right now and i know you're also like an advisor as well providing continuous help so um that you're definitely providing a huge impact there i kind of want to linger on the element of you know actually creating something right uh from scratch from zero to one right and i I know for you this is a club but you know you talked about how you had to communicate with these you know predominantly old um white and male right people who have the power who have the like the resources the uh, access to these opportunities and you know for the most part our industry is like you know mainly focused right predominantly you know ruled by those types of people, right? Uh, Whether that be, you know, the actual investors or even the startup founders. And for us kids right now who are building these businesses or are seeking to, you know, be someone who works at some of these companies, right? What is the number one way, I guess you could say, where we can gain their trust, right? Or build relationships with those people um, and, you know, kind of be in, uh, a participant perhaps or someone who is able to see within their circle right because you know maybe they have access to capital they have access to resources like we said how can we you know as students potentially you know be a part of that and gain that trust great it's a great question peter i think probably the most important thing is persistence you know it, it, it's it's fun to talk about cbc and all these you know amazing venture firms that the club has worked with over you know, whatever, 13 years that it's been around. But um, like the number of times that people said no, um, you know, when we when we made a call, uh, and usually you, you know, I used to do the call myself, well, Andrew would do the call himself. We didn't bring, bring like the whole club to kind of do a one, one-on-one call. Um, in the number of venture firms that just said like, yeah, this is cool, but like you're too young or it's in fact, you know, I, I think foundation just where I work today as a partner, I remember Pinging Foundation, one of now the partners who, who is no longer with us, but um, you know, I, he, he coincidentally had gone to to, to uh, uh, a master's program with with my uncle, and so I was able to kind of you know connect into him, and I and I pitched him this whole idea, and we used to have this amazing deck and everything that would explain what we had done, and his response, he was like, "Look, like you're just too young. Like we work with business school students, we're okay working with them, but it's really hard for us to work with undergraduates. You don't have any." career experience, you just have to be okay with rejection and you just have to keep being persistent. So that's the most important characteristic 
uh, in terms of going and starting something new or trying something that is harder to do than your traditional track. Um, the second piece is really spending the time doing the work preparing in advance of any of these calls. I mean, there was not a single call that we took for granted, even the one I described with the, the found, former foundation partner. I mean, amount of prep that we did, how we thought about what to pitch, spending time really looking at the background of the person you're going to speak with, what they have done, why they are speaking to you, what's unique. Like we did not take a single meeting for granted. And that's really important. Doing the work, preparing, it, it, it has a huge impact because it shows the other person that you have really planned something. And then the third thing is you have to come up with a new idea. Like this whole concept of saying, hey, maybe we should work with these VC firms because they don't seem to have anybody young. So who's doing the day-to-day -day work? That was a unique idea in 2010. You have to come up with something that's different, that isn't the norm that other people are not doing and try that. Don't try and copy you know, what you're seeing online or what you've heard another person's doing at another school or you know in some other club it's really important to say hey what is something different that i can do today that no one else has thought about so those would be the three pieces I of advice it. there i love it and just to kind of reiterate man like when it comes to just not giving up right if even if it's just a battle against yourself a competition against yourself the worst thing right? The best thing, right? That your competitor wants is for you to give up because that's basically you taking yourself out of the competition, right? That's you basically losing any potential opportunity. And when it comes and, to, yeah. you know, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think the, the other thing I'd say, Peter, is many times like the competitor isn't another person. It's usually just you. Exactly. You know, you're competing against exactly your own mind saying, hey, you can't do this. Mm -hmm. And, and it's just really important recognizing like this is not about saying, hey, we're going to do it better than right. person A or person B. Like usually you know, you're not competing against an individual. You're just competing against a frame of mind, exactly. frame of reference. And it is really, really important to recognize that because it, it, it reduces the likelihood that mm -hmm. this ends up being just like a, a competitive dynamic with another mm -hmm. individual. Yeah. At the end of the day, most of the time you will work as a team. Right. You work in a team. It's really important to recognize that. Yeah. And another another framework that a lot of people use is, you know, compete against yourself, but the yesterday version of you, right? How can you be better than the yesterday version? And that sets like a very, you know, clear framework of who you got to be, right? And doesn't, it's not directed X, you know, outwards towards hate towards other people, but just like, all right, that's me yesterday. How can I just get 1% better? Right. And that's it. Right. As simple as that. So, yeah, I totally agree. And when it comes and, and to- maybe the, the last thing I would just say, Peter, on this topic, which I didn't mention with three points I mentioned, like there's also a big portion of luck that has to come your way. Like, did, did we know at the time that there was this one part-time professor at Cornell who was also a part-time VC who had worked in venture law before, mm -hmm. who had the network and the access? No, candidly, like we didn't. Exactly. He was Zach was the only person who had some level of tech investing experience. That's mm -hmm. why we went to him and asked him. Did could we not have had anybody at Cornell? Yes, mm -hmm. there was a real chance. And most universities in 2010 did not. Maybe if you were at Stanford, you had like 50 people who had that yeah. access, but certainly not in upstate New York. So yeah. there is a there's a portion of luck here. 
absolutely they, they, like luck has a huge huge impact mm-hmm. and I, I don't know if you have read this article about from uh sahil bloom uh he's a huge influencer but he talks a lot about how to increase your surface area for luck right by you know doing more things putting yourself out there more frequently right in situations where luck can happen to you you see it more often right just by nature of it you know being more you know likely to actually impact you so i think by you going out there right seeking these people there's a higher chance for you to receive right something that's great versus just staying alone right just recruiting for clubs instead not to say that that's bad right but you know creating that supply to fulfill those demands so that's that's i love that um kind of redefinition of that uh you know angle of luck yeah um well on the topic of you know being uh i guess unique right and also like you know differentiated from the crowd um it seems like everyone in the world wants to do investment banking (laughs) at least that's what it is right now Right. Everyone in Dyson or the majority of Dyson, um, people in business school think uh, banking is the way to go. Um, and that's the way to, you know, build a you know very long lasting career that um, can, you know, be proud of. Right. And you did banking as well, but perhaps maybe not for the same reasons. Right. Um, for its popularity or for something else. Um, so what were your you know reasons for doing banking out of undergrad? Uh, what were your motivations and um, I guess, how'd you like it? Yeah, it's a great question. Great question. So look, it, it, it's funny. Um, the reason that Andrew and I started CVC was we both wanted to get into the venture business. So we thought we did. And, and once we started and we did those projects, not only did we think we did, we really did want to do that. And for both of us, we, you know, we spent a lot of time with, with very senior VCs as a result of that club. And as we were getting towards the end of our time at Cornell, both of us would spend a lot of time with these folks trying to understand, like, what does it take to be a venture capitalist? And our biggest learning was to be a successful venture capitalist, you had to have experienced what a successful set of technology companies looked like at scale. Not not at the beginning, at scale, because you had to understand, like, what does good or great look like? What is an amazing company? What's a category defining company and how does it operate at scale? And the more we kind of dug in to the backgrounds of VCs, the more we realized that they fit into three buckets. And all these three buckets gave these VCs before they came into the VC business an an opportunity to experience scale. And there are three ways to do it. One was you found it and you built your own company. And the founders of Andreessen Horowitz, Mark Andreessen, Ben Horowitz, are you know, probably the best example of that. They both founded and built amazing companies that operated scale and sold them for a billion dollars and amazing. The second wave was you ended up becoming a very senior executive at a category-defining company. I'll take Bill Corin, who's an infrastructure investor at Sequoia Capital, well-known. He was the first VP of engineering. He ran the entire engineering organization at Google and saw it operate at scale. That was one way to kind of, and then after that, he became a VC. That was another way to experience scale. And then the, the third path was that you either became a banker or a consultant where you worked with those companies at scale. So as a banker, you would help to take a bunch of companies public, and there you'd be able to see what those companies look like at scale. You'd be able to spend a lot of time with the management teams. You'd be able to kind of experience what it what it feels like, what, what are the metrics, but not, not just the metrics, like 
what is the uniqueness of this product that allows it to be category defining and the uniqueness of this team, what drives the most successful CEOs. And both Andrew and I, independent of one another, kind of looked at the three options and we picked the fastest one. <laughs> like the fastest one in our mind was the, the last one. We we're like, okay, like this seems like I can I can see scale from from day zero if I join this kind of this area. And then and we both ended up becoming bankers, independent of you know each other's thinking. It's amazing though at the time, um, the the one of the recruiters at Sequoia was trying to convince me to go to this little company and be the first business-oriented person at that little company. And that little company at the time was a company called MongoDB. It was called TenGen, in fact, at the time. And 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 that and that that recruiter at Sequoia was. Uh, today, you know, is a very famous recruiter. She ended up running all of recruiting at Sequoia. Her name is Jamie Bott. She just recently retired and left the firm. But it was probably the the, the, the worst, wow. uh, you know, I could have gone and joined Bongo <laughs> and it would have been an amazing decision. But, uh, and, and it's funny, like that email is still there in my Cordell email. I have emails going, you know, all trailing all wow. the way back 15 years. So you could see the email from JV trying to convince me to go do this. And I had done a summer at Barclays, which was the bank that I joined. I wanted to go back to Barclays. So I told her, look, like I already signed the software to come back. And I really enjoyed my summer and I think I can learn. And she was trying to convince me. She's like, no, 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 this company is, you know, it's going to change the infrastructure landscape. And I said, oh, well, that's cool, but I don't want to take that risk. You know, option two, become a senior executive <laughs> sounds like it may take too long. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. yeah, that was my story. That's, why I did banking. that's insane and everything's in hindsight right so we can only imagine what sid would look like right if he did take that offer and go all in there um you'd have you know i think honestly you might have you know still ended up at the exact same spot you are right now which yeah, is probably right um if this is the true calling right like as you said um wow that is insane so um of course, you know, going down the traditional Wall Street Oasis, Wall Street prep path of uh, after banking, right? Um, there's only a couple options. There's like Corp Dev, there's PE, there's, you know, going to hedge funds, other VCs, stuff like that. And um, seems like you did PE, right? Which is one of the more common options. And probably if I were to go down that path would be my path as well. So, you know, how was the transition like? Did you kind of go into banking thinking that you were you know, trying to exit into PE afterwards. And I know you specialize specifically in software, right? Um, but again, you're a bio major, do econ, I would expect maybe a specialization in maybe like healthcare, or like health tech or something like that. So what created that shift um, to, you know, really go all in on the software element of uh, the buy side? And uh, yes, what was that trend? So there, the two big questions now, I'll start with the last one first around why did I do software? So I come into Barclays and... You know, I, I wanted to do technology, you know, going back to the venture thing, I want to do tech. So I, I joined the Barclays tech team and, and we were based in, in New York and, and Barclays was actually, it was in the process of transitioning from Lehman to, to Barclays. So it was in the same building that's synonymous with the 2008 crisis. Lehman, Lehman obviously went bankrupt and then Barclays bought the assets of, of Lehman uh, after kind of bankruptcy. So when when you came into the office on the outside had the Barclays logo, but in fact when when we used to go onto the floors, the the computer still said Lehman Brothers. It was it was really funny, like you know, it was, and and when you went into the, the the senior managing directors or the senior VPs offices, they still had a lot of 
Lehman related swag, uh, which was funny to see. But the way that Lehman operated, which Barclays kept that strategy, at least while I was there, was the tech team was divided into two core buckets in the US. There was a New York based tech team that predominantly did enterprise software. And there was a Menlo tech team that did internet and semiconductors. And for context, again, in, in between 2012 and kind of 2014, when I was at the firm, 2014, 2015, uh, the real focus um, at, the, at the time in terms of taking companies public was around Facebook, Twitter, GoPro. I mean, there were these amazing social media companies that were you know, in the process or, or had just gone public. It was very, very exciting. But the Menlo Park team was doing all of that, that cool stuff. Um, and then there was a lot of acquisitions going on in the semiconductor world. And then there was work, work going on in the storage world. The cybersecurity and core IT infrastructure, which is considered middleware in enterprise software, there's kind of applications, there's middleware, and then there's core infrastructure. Middleware was considered a very sleepy category. It was just not very exciting. And so the way that the work was divided up, cyber as a category was kind of given to a team that was more junior. And so they picked kind of the most junior analyst, which in this case ended up being me. I was very lucky, to be honest, you know, retrospectively, the most junior associate and not even a managing director, a director to kind of cover cyber. And we started covering the cybersecurity sector and we spent a lot of time with some amazing companies. Uh, remember, we did the original IPO pitch for Rapid7, didn't end up going public until a couple of years later. Uh, we were spending time with FireEye, which ended up going public, with Palo Alto Networks, which ended up going public, with SourceFire, which ended up getting going public and then being acquired by Cisco. But it was a very, very interesting time to kind of cover cyber. And then we did a lot of work in infrastructure um, with kind of the, the first generation of database companies. Uh, it was a very, very interesting time to kind of cover that. But don't get me wrong, I got lucky in you know covering enterprise software and very specifically infrastructure software. And maybe the smartest thing I did after that is I said, hey, this sector seems interesting. Maybe I should try to stick to the sector, enterprise. And remember, like I, when I graduated from Cornell, I thought I'd do banking and then venture. And so when the recruiters were paying me, my core focus, I said, look, I want to do venture. And so they started to connect me. And, and I realized that the venture jobs that were coming out of banking were very later stage venture or growth equity related. And because I had done my time at CVC, that wasn't the venture that I knew, right? I, I was very used to kind of like looking at early stage companies where you spent a lot of time rolling up your sleeves and helping founders build businesses. Not so much just looking at, at numbers and then kind of writing a check and letting them kind of go with it. Um, so the more time I spent with these candidly amazing late stage venture and growth equity firms, the more I realized like, nah, it's not really what I want to do. And then I realized I went back to the, the the few VCs that I knew from my CVC days, and I said, "Look, like I'm not getting these venture jobs. Like, what's going on?" And and what had happened was the venture business had changed, and the venture business now was very focused on well, you should also have some operational expertise. And Dreesen Horowitz, that little firm when I was in college, had now become a little bit bigger, and the big push they were trying to make in the venture market was, well, you know, you want your VCs to have operational perspective. And so the, the the VCs I knew told me like, you need to get some operational background. And I said, okay, to your point, Peter, there was options to do corporate development, but I realized like corp dev at a company is not operational expertise. You know, it's mostly interacting with 
bankers and you're trying to look at acquisitions. But I, I realized certain types of private equity firms were very operationally focused because they took majority investments and if they didn't have a big operating partner pool, which most of the smaller private equity firms didn't have, then the investors actually spent the time helping those businesses. And Symphony Technology Group, which was founded by a three-time entrepreneur, Ramesh Radwani, who was the richest Indian American um, and, and had become wealthy because of his kind of experience as a founder, he had built a middle market enterprise software focused buyout firm that was very operationally focused. And so when I spent time with that team, I realized, wow, this is this is this is where I may get my operational expertise finally. And that's why I joined the, the firm. And I said, okay, well, if I get enough operational expertise, maybe I can do a early stage venture. It's insane to just hear your thought process as you continue on in your career because it seems like almost every almost like every single decision was pointed, is directed. And at the same time, it, you know. I liked especially the part you said about like, you know, doubling down on enterprise, right? Rather, you know, focusing on one thing, being the best in that, than, you know, spreading yourself out too thin and, you know, not being able to provide some real value add at the end of the day to these companies. Um, so, you know, afterwards, you know, as we all know, you eventually became an associate at um, the current firm, right? Which you are at right now called... Um... Actually, no. So I was, I oh. first became an associate at, at Omidyar Ventures. Yes. So, you know, I joined Symphony and was doing private equity. And then, you know, through a friend, I got introduced to the Omidyar Ventures team. And Omidyar Ventures was actually started by Pierre Omidyar, the founder of eBay and okay. the largest shareholder in eBay and PayPal. And Pierre was starting a new venture firm mm -hmm. that was doing just early stage venture and early growth venture with just his capital. Wow. And there was a three-person team and they're looking for a fourth person who would be the youngest person, mm -hmm. the associate. And that was an opportunity for me. I said, okay, now I've got my venture opportunity. And I, so I joined Amidyar and I was there for almost three years before I joined, uh, before well, I joined foundation. And I guess, you know, just off the bat, how did you, well, did, was, when, was venture as, you know, desirable as you expected after all that time in, you know, the sell side and, you know, banking and also like, you know, on the buy side afterwards, or was it like, you know, well, you did three years, I would assume <laughs> it did fulfill that lust. Right. So, you know, I guess, yeah. Well, how was, how was that like? Well, some of it was what I was expecting. Some of it was, was new. Like what I was expecting was the opportunity to spend time with founders at the earliest formation stages, the opportunity to help them think about how to kind of grow an idea into a company, the opportunity to, to, to experience what it what happens when a company really scales when it starts to grow at this astronomical rate the areas that that I didn't expect was just how competitive the venture market was the, the venture market had become more and more competitive from my time as a college student to, to when I joined a media and so the biggest difference was that the amount of capital in the industry had grown. It had multifold expanded and the number of firms had also expanded. And so winning a deal was very, very different. That was one big change. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, the the and, other changes were really around kind of you know, domain expertise. Suddenly it did, it did help the, the proliferation of tech in multiple industries. That was very different. I see. I see. I see. That makes sense. Um, and I, <sighs> 
really, really want, I, li- I really like your angle that you're playing at right now, right? Specifically about, you know, how hard it is to win the deals, right? Anyone can necessarily, you know, find them, do research on them, keep them in the conversation, X, Y, and Z, right? But, you know, getting them to actually be like, yes, I'll take your capital, Sid, and we'll give you equity is incredibly hard, right? For these top companies. So, you know, during your time at Omidyar, right? And also at, you know, uh, the one that you're at right now, Foundation Capital, what do you suggest are the key selling points that you like to bring up when it comes to winning a deal yourself? Um, what do you think, you know, is probably like the biggest value add that you like to offer to founders or, you know, try to win them over? Because um, eventually, right, as someone who wants to start their own fund, I want to have those killer reasons as well, where I can convince you on the spot. Hey, trust in Peter. I got you. I'll take your company to the moon. You know, I, there's there's many different ways to 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 win deals. And by the way, the, the sourcing part, finding the best deals is also incredibly hard. I don't want to make it sound like it's a Absolutely. simple off the bat That's experience. True. It's very hard to find the best founders. It's easy to find companies, to your point, because when you're giving away money, everyone wants to talk to you, right? right. But exactly. But the people who are pinging you, not all the time are they the best companies. Not to say that some of them aren't good, but you know, the, the best founders, you have to go and find them. And sometimes you have to convince them to go and start companies. And so at the, we at, at Foundation, we're investing at the very, very early, the formation stages typically. And so when we're investing, we're typically leading around a seed round where there's either just the founders or maybe there's just the founders and a handful of, of employees. And there's usually no revenue. And sometimes there's not even a product. So we're getting involved very, very early. But for me, and and, and every person has a different way of winning a deal and, and different things that they bring to the table. But for me, it ends up being kind of a couple of core things. One, um, obviously, because I've had this domain expertise of cyber and IT infrastructure, and I've been lucky to kind of focus on this category for 12 years, I'm able to come in with a very you know, pointed view on where the market is, being able to provide context to the founders, being able to tell them kind of, you know, this is what has worked in the past. This is what I think potentially could work in the future. And sometimes I'm right, sometimes I'm wrong. But but I, I come in with a point of view and I've, I've usually seen multiple iterations of a subsector. There was a first gen for, you know, type of company, then there was a second, second gen type of company and then there was a third gen type of company. You know, give, taking the example in endpoint security, I remember the Symantec's and McAfee's of the world having spent time with them as an investment banker, which were the first gen endpoint security companies. And I remember the second gen, which were the crowd strikes and silences and carbon blacks of the world. And then there's a third gen today of endpoint security companies. So I have a point of view. You know, I know what the CEOs thought of those first gen companies and the founders of the second gen. So by the time I'm talking to the third or fourth gen in any category, I have a point of view. You know, that is very, very valuable to founders. The second big value point is obviously because of those 12 years, I've, I've built a very, very deep network. And that deep network kind of fits into three different buckets. One, I have a very large customer network. This is CIOs, CISOs, and CTOs. These are heads of kind of technology or heads of security at very large Fortune 2000 companies. Think of the PayPal's, the Equifax's, the Home Depot's, the Targets, the Intuits of the world. And I use that network to help me with diligence, 
I use, I, I use that same network of executives to help me kind of win deals. And I also use it to, to help me to, you know, help my companies find their first few customers and their first few design partners. And when founders spend time with me, they, they can very quickly see that I have this big network. The second big network ends up being an operator network, which is people who have worked at past companies in my, in, in my field of expertise, cybersecurity and IT infrastructure. And those folks are used to kind of provide value add for my founders, but also as potential employees, potential co-founders. And that access is also differentiated. The third one ends up being kind of very specific, which is perspective around what it takes to scale a business what it takes to go and you know figure out an exit scenario, whether it be an IPO or an M&A. And I've been fortunate to kind of do both in, across my career, including on the investing side. I've been fortunate to have four of my companies exit and have successful exit outcomes. Um, and so I've had enough experience of kind of saying like, this is what it takes to scale the business. This is what it takes to find you know that next trajectory. Um, but I, I'm able to come in with a point of view that is very specific to the domain that I invest in. I see. I see. And and you said it yourself, right? One of the biggest resources is network. It's people. It's the individuals that you have come in contact with and that you bring along with you, right? To any new conversation, right? Um, that you have. But oftentimes, you know, some people don't do it well, right? They can't build a network. They can't really, you know, bring people along. And, you know, there's many different reasons for that. But you were able to, you know, keep them engaged, right? Um, close, warm, so that when you do potentially have a call or request, a call to action, you could eventually call them. So how do you keep your network warm so that when you do make these asks, they're more seamless, right? And how do you manage so many different, you know, people, individuals in your Rolodex so you don't get confused, you know, who and how to tap into each and every single person so you can get the most out of, you know, your network? Great questions. I think on the, the first point around how do I get the ass to, to work? Well, to, to, to get a set of ass to work, you have to give. And my focus has always been around what can I give back to the community? And whether for customers in the early days when I started building this network about eight or nine years ago now, it was really around I would spend time with these execs and, and basically just help them understand the landscape, the, the early stage landscape, which they typically didn't have a point of view on. They would work with large research industry analyst organizations like Gartner and Forrester, who had lots of view and perspective on bigger companies and growth stage startups, but they didn't really spend much time with start, kind of early stage startups. And so they didn't have a good understanding of what was coming, what were the new technologies that were coming. And I'd go and do presentations and I'd come up with new things. And mind you, like none of this was valuable in terms of finding startups to invest in or helping my startups in the early days. So it required a lot of extra work, work later in the evenings, work over weekends that was in the early days, not valuable, but you have to stick to it. This goes back to the, our earlier conversation around persistence. You have to first come up with a strategy that's unique. And in my case, it was, I'm gonna go out and build this customer network and then have the persistence to say, well, it's gonna take time and I gotta keep pushing until I see the result. And eventually you have to also be good enough to kind of push something aside. And there are lots of other things I've done where I've tried something and said, ah, it doesn't work like can this whole thing. But I spent a lot of time giving before asking. And so today, knowing many of these executives for many, many years, it's much more easier to call them and say, 
I, Mike, I really need you to take this call. I know it's a Saturday. I know you have to take your son to the lacrosse game, but if you can spend 20 minutes with this founder, I want your point of view. That request I can make to individuals like that. And that has helped. And it, and then usually it was relationships that were built many, many years ago with a lot of give on my end. Your, your, your second question around how do I effectively kind of manage this network? One kind of lucky skill I have in my head is I'm pretty good with remembering things and remembering action items. Like my brain operates in a very action item oriented way. And I'm quite good at remembering names and people and kind of what, what specific action item to a specific person. And so in the early days when I was building these networks, like most of it was in my head. And fortunately we had this big pandemic happen and made it very hard to kind of do meetings in person. And so I got all this extra time that used to be travel time. And I used that to go and, you know, take all the stuff that was in my head and put it into like a spreadsheet. And so now it's all very effectively managed. Like I can tell, you know, very consistently, I'm able to say, okay, these operators I've spent this much time with, I met with them last month or last quarter or a year ago, and I need to take another meeting at this point in time. And so it is much more systematic, but back in, for many years, it was all being done in my head. Like I'd remember it and I was good enough to remember it. That's awesome. I envy that. I wish I had this type of memory. Would have saved me a lot of uh, work on my personal networking tracker on Excel. So <laughs> that's hilarious. And and thank you for that. Um, First of all, there's going to be definitely a part two. Um, There's no question about it sometime down in the future, but I have one more question left. Go for it. And, um, you know, usually I ask, right, you know, what's your thesis on a certain topic or anything like that. And I feel like, you know, you can obviously give me an answer. It'll be broad, but instead I'd rather prefer, you know, to know if let's just say, hypothetically, I take Sid all the way back to Cornell, you're now 20, right? You're a junior knowing what you know right now um, about the industry as a whole and where, you know, deep tech software is going right now. Do you, what, what, what company would you build, right? If you could build any, um and who would you build it with uh how would you do it we want to know <laughs> yeah. yeah um it's very hard to answer that that question effectively because at the end of the day as investors i'm i'm very mindful of the fact that i'm not a founder yeah and i don't want to make the 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 investing decision because of an idea i came up with that i convinced two founders or three founders or one founder to, to build. Um, and I have to always remember that, you know, if I wanted to be a founder, I could do that, but I don't think that I'd be that good of a founder for various reasons. <laughs> um, I, but, but to answer your, com- your question specifically, it would probably be something in cyber because you know, I just know it really well. If it wasn't something in cyber, it would be something in IT infrastructure, which, which I know pretty well too. But if it was something in cyber, it would likely be something focused on application security, which I think is taking a, which I think is seeing a very large renaissance, which is happening as a result of, of kind of infrastructure moving from on-premises data centers to the cloud, to these, you know, third-party cloud providers like Google and Microsoft and AWS. And that is changing the way that that engineers are building applications at large companies. And as that, that, that way is changing, specifically around engineers having more access, direct access to how to build and deploy their applications, they also want security to be at par. And the way that application security works today, it requires too much work from the security teams to get a 
an app kind of fully patched before it goes to production. And there's a lot of work that we can do around kind of automating some of that work while still managing the security element, potential risk and vulnerabilities that, that exist that are only becoming more complex. But, but you can actually reduce the, 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 the total risk while also making that whole process a little bit more automated so that the developer can push an update or can push a new application to production a little bit faster than they are today. Thank you for that. And with that, I really, really, really appreciate your time, Sid. This has been an absolute pleasure and an insane episode that I'll be pretty much reviewing um, and playing back a couple more times just to really grasp the magnitude of kind of the things that you're saying. And like I said, there's no doubt there will be a second part. Um, and probably the second part is just purely just, you know, what you're doing at Foundation and, you know, your more thoughts on the market and stuff like that. But, you know, thank you so much, Sid. Um, this has been an absolute pleasure and you've definitely inspired me. So, um, thank thanks, you. Peter. Thanks for having me on. I'm glad that this was was valuable, and hopefully, it's valuable to your audience too. It absolutely is, man. There's no doubt in my mind. Thank you.